Go. Laser eyes, laser eyes, laser eyes, roller coaster mission on the raindrop. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Dan Lajwa of The Weird. If you tuned in to our episode last week, uh, we talked a lot about music, and it inspired me to change this podcast into one where I just sing uh, whatever comes into my head, and uh, you listen. That's the way it works. In fact, you'll listen until I receive $100. Well, Jesus Christ. If COVID didn't get you, that will. Riley, you're ruining the surprise. We have extended the stay of uh, a certain special someone. No, it's not my mom who is pleading to get on this podcast. And let me tell you, not impressed that this certain someone continues uh, to find a seat at our table. Uh, we have returning uh, this week again, Mr. Sean Rexall Tucker. Thank you for acknowledging my middle name. Um, Dan, I, two things. I just want to say, as your vocal coach, big improvement. You're really coming along nicely. I still want to put my head <laughs> and slam it in a door frame when you sing, yeah. but only one side of it now. So, yeah, it's really, I love your register is perfect. You, you and Riley would have been there when, you know, 25 years ago, I was trying to sing in um, dinner theater and uh, I almost drove the director mad. Yes. Uh, with my inability to sing. I am doing, uh, the, the story is, it takes us back actually to uh, your native homeland, Sean. Uh, but before I, I get into that, I'd like to start with a quote. This is from Samuel Taylor Coleridge. You may have heard of him. And a poem called Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Of course. And rhyme spelled R-I-M-E-E. -E. That's right. Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread that was nice dan it was actually very nice so that is a fitting beginning uh with this strange tale i bring to you today i thought that was a really nice reading thank it you was, it was good it was very nice uh this episode as i mentioned brings us back to scotland and specifically the highland country what part of uh, scotland shauna is your family from my family is from a neighborhood in Glasgow called okay. the Gorbals, which is uh, used to be quite a rough area. It's better now, but uh, yeah. The, Been gentrified? Like every place else, yes. Yeah. And see, my family are the Stuarts, and we basically own the place. Oh, interesting. Well, interesting that you mentioned that. I love when these little natural segues happen. I recently read Robert Louis Stevenson's or Louis Stevenson's book, Kidnapped. I'd read Treasure Island many years ago, but read. So you what? You you were never in grade four. You read Kidnapped in grade four. Yeah, like that was a book we read in grade four or five. But I had never read it, and I'm glad I did because it it talks so in so much great detail about the Highlands and life at that time. And what I've got like. a book you're gonna love. It's called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Oh, shut up! I'm gonna send it to you right now by courier. And when I was reading when I was reading that book, it reminded me of how mysterious Scotland can be and, and also how much I love the area. So my wife is one eighth Scottish, but it's her her maiden name is Scottish. She's a Burgess. 
And in fact, the extensive family history has been done on that line. So we know where her family's from. They're from Lockerbie uh, and in the environs around there. And we, we actually got to, to visit in 2007 and got to see like the farm and the church where her great, great grandfather was buried and where they got married and all these sorts of things. So it's a, it's a near and dear place to my heart. We actually met a potential relative of hers while we were there and uh, became close friends with them and still sort of keep in touch. I will support you in this because having been to Scotland briefly, and that's on my next list of sort of five places I want to go, it's an incredibly romantic spiritual place. It is. There's some quality about it that makes it really stand out from the rest of the UK. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that there would be this sort of um, homogenous feeling about being in the British Isles. Not at all. No. And I really have to say, I preferred the romanticism. There's something about Scotland. I preferred it more than Ireland. There was just something about it that just made me feel, wow. Yeah. And we went to Skye, the over the sea to Skye mm-hmm. in, in the mm-hmm. boat. We did the traditional thing. And there was just something so fucking amazing about being there. I felt at rest, if that makes any sense. Interesting. But well, it's, you know, it's funny you say that because I felt the same way going to uh, the, the times I've gone back to Ireland. I've always felt that way. I've felt like I'm at home and your roots are Scottish. So that right? You have Scottish roots? Well, yes. Yeah. So it maybe that's why. I did I did an I did an interview on Scottish television while intoxicated. That's a true story and uh for another podcast, but it's not something I'm uh proud of. Well, intoxication in Scotland is not an unusual thing. I didn't say anyone noticed. I just felt <laughs> <laughs> So this tale, gentlemen, brings us to Ben Macdui, which is the biggest mountain in the Cairngorms mountain range, and it's the second highest mountain in the UK. The summit rises from the southern part of a huge subarctic upland unique in the British Isles. It is a harsh environment where nothing grows save the hardiest of alpine plants. When the clouds roll in, summits can be shrouded for days, and in the winter, the weak northern sun often does not penetrate the deep glens for weeks. At times like this, the featureless plateau is at its most elemental. Gray above and below, the perfect environment for the entity we will discuss today. Mm. In Scottish folklore, Am Fir Liathmore, which translates to Big Gray Man, or he's also known as the Big Grey Man of Ben Macdui, or simply the Grey Man, is the name for a presence or creature which is said to have haunt the summit and passes of the mountain. It is reported to be very thin and over 10 feet tall, with dark skin and hair, long arms, and broad shoulders. Most often, the creature remains unseen in the fog of the mountain, with encounters limited to the sound of crunching gravel as it walks behind climbers, and, most importantly, and universally, a general feeling of unease. I like this story. It's very atmospheric and serious and spooky. Mm. I like it. It'd be good to listen to in bed. Well, unless you're my neighbor, Sasha, because if she listens to this thing in bed, she's falling asleep. Well, that's what you do in bed after you have sexy time. Tangible evidence of its existence is limited to a few photographs of unusual footprints. So the majority relies on the credibility of the eyewitness encounters. So this is a pseudo Bigfoot thing. Well, that depends on who you talk to because there are 
there are far more people that would say it has nothing to do with Bigfoot. But I mean that kind of legend. Humanoid creature? No, that's the thing. Some people, and we'll get to this, obviously we'll talk about theories of what what it is. There's a completely different element to this story that is unique to the Bigfoot saga or Sasquatch or whatever. Okay. Yeti. Yeah, this is, there's a spiritual haunting element to this that you don't really find with Bigfoot. Groovy. Professor J. Norman Colley was a highly respected scientist and mountaineer. In 1896, he was appointed professor of organic chemistry at the University College London. And amongst his other achievements, he was responsible for the first ever medical x-ray photograph. He was also a fellow of the Royal Society, and in the climbing world, he pioneered many climbs on the Isle of Skye, which you just mentioned, uh, Riley, and in the Alps. And in 1895, he was part of the first ever attempt on an 8,000-meter peak in the Himalayas, Nanga Parbat. Wow. Do you know where Nanga Parbat is? No, I've I've never heard the word. What an idiot. So he later went on to make 21 first ascents in the Canadian Rockies. And he's actually remembered in the names of Mount Collie in Canada and Segur Thormade or Norman's Peak on Sky. So when in late 1925, the still eminent and active Professor Collie stood up to give a speech to the 27th annual general meeting of the Cairngorm Club in Aberdeen, He was a man whose words carried a great deal of weight with his audience, which added all the more to the impact of part of what he had to say about an experience he had while alone on the summit of Ben McDuy in the Cairngorms 34 years earlier in 1891. And I quote, I was returning from the Cairn on the summit in a mist when I began to think I heard something else than merely the noise of my own footsteps. For every few steps I took, I heard a crunch, and then another crunch, as if someone was walking after me, but taking steps three or four times the length of my own. I said to myself, this is all nonsense. I listened and heard it again, but could see nothing in the mist. As I walked on, and the eerie crunch, crunch sounded behind me, I was seized with terror and took to my heels, staggering blindly among the boulders for four or five miles, nearly down to Rothmurch's forest. Whatever you make of it, I do not know, but there is something very queer about the top of Ben McDuy, and I will not go back there again myself, I know. Cool. Colley's account was reported in the local press, which started a debate between skeptics and believers within the community. His comments caused a sensation and attracted a great deal of national press coverage. Suddenly, other respectable and responsible climbers and hillwalkers started to acknowledge that they too had had similar experiences on Ben McDuey, but had not broadcast them for fear of ridicule. Now, interesting little note, Christine Mill, Colley's biographer, explains how Colley was a lifelong believer in the occult. Mill also notes Colley would often tell stories around the campfire or in his den of Gaelic mountain gods and goddesses and other legendary creatures. And as she put it, no one quite knew how much he was believing it himself. Right. So there is that little comment. This guy could fib. Now, 
He also wanted to believe. Remember how we always talk about the X-Files poster, I want to believe. And I'll, I'll counter with this. Just because he likes to fib, there's a difference between fibbing around a campfire with friends, probably over a scotch or two, than getting up at an official ceremony like the one he was at or convention that he was at mm-hmm. and putting your whole reputation on the line like that and not making it sound like a joke. I was going to say, you know what my favorite part of this podcast so far is? Hearing you say McDewey. I love that name, Ben McDewey. And I'm probably butchering it. No, but, but it's so cute, McDewey. And and Dan, if I could just interject for a second, I can assure you that the one thing I do know, having grown up with my background and family, is that after a few drinks, the last thing a Scottish person is concerned with is their reputation. <laughs> yeah, touche. <laughs> but I, I, and I was going to go back to just the fact that he believes in the occult. That isn't necessarily a reason to refute his story. Right. He might believe because he's had experiences. Maybe he's more sensitive to those things. So. Alistair Borthwick's book about climbing in Scotland, always a little further, relates the account of two climbers he knew who had experienced what by then was becoming known as Amphir Liath, Moore or Furlas Moore, uh, the big grey man of Ben McDewey, because of its appearance when briefly glimpsed by a few of those who encountered it. So this is a quote. The first was alone heading over McDewey for Coorer on a night when the snow had a hard crisp crust through which his boots broke at every step. He reached the summit, and it was while he was descending the slopes which fall towards the Larig that he heard footsteps behind him, footsteps not in the rhythm of his own, but occurring only once for every three steps he took. I felt a queer, crinkly feeling in the back of my neck, he told me. But I said to myself, ah, this is silly, there must be a reason for it. So I stopped, and the footsteps stopped, and I sat down and, and, and tried to reason it out. I could see nothing. There was moon about somewhere, but the mist was fairly thick. The only thing I could make of it was that when my boots broke through the snow crust, they made some sort of echo. But then, every step should have echoed, and not just this regular one in three. I was scared stiff. I got up and walked on, trying hard not to look behind me. I got down all right. The footsteps stopped a thousand feet above the larig, and I didn't run, but if anything had so much as said boo behind me, I'd have been down the core like a streak of lightning. The second man's experience was roughly similar. He was on McDewey and alone. He heard footsteps. He was climbing in daylight in summer, but so dense was the mist that he was working by compass, and visibility was almost as poor as it would have been at night. The footsteps he heard were made by something or someone trudging up the fine screes which decorate the upper parts of the mountain, a thing not extraordinary in itself, though the steps were only a few yards behind him but exceedingly odd when the mist suddenly cleared and he could see no living thing on the mountain at that point devoid of cover of any kind. Did the steps follow yours exactly? I asked him. No, he said. That was the funny thing. They didn't. They were regular, all right. But the queer thing was that they seemed to come once for every two and a half steps I took. He thought it was queer still when I told him the other man's story. You see, he was long-legged and six feet tall, and the first man was only five foot seven. 
Once I was out with a search party on McDewey, and on the way down after an unsuccessful day, I asked some of the gameskeepers and stalkers who were with us what they thought of it all. They worked on McDewey, so they should know. Had they seen Felas Moore? Did he exist, or was it just a silly story? They looked at me for a few seconds, and then one said, We do not talk about that. Oh. One climber, Hugh D. Welsh, said that he hiked the summit with his brother in 1904, where throughout the day and night, they heard slurring footsteps as if someone was walking through water-saturated gravel, and both felt frequently conscious of something near them and an eerie sense of apprehension. Can I tell you something, Dan? Mm-hmm. That passage that you read from the book, and I'm not I'm not trying to make a joke in any way, shape, or form, that was really good. That was like audiobook quality. Like my favorite audiobook reader is an actor. He's a B actor named Will Patton. And he has just this amazing kind of slightly country voice and he does an amazing audiobook. You did a really good job just there. Well, thank you, my friend. You know who you know who does a really good job? Matthew McConaughey. I can see that. So we have an app called Calm that my daughter used for many years. She had to do needles uh, once a week for she has juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And the medication she takes can make her feel really sick uh, oh. to her stomach. And so we would listen to these uh, narrated stories and they'd put her and they're designed to put you to sleep. And Matthew McConaughey does this story called Wonder on there. And he I just love his voice. He it's so warm and rich and calm. It's wonderful. The slight Southern drawl always adds something. Southerners make great storytellers. Is that the the, the novel? No, Wonder? no, that- no, it's not um no, it's not the novel. It's a short story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nicely done, Lajwa. Nicely done. It's it's like s- sexual chocolate. Well, that's exactly what I was going for, sexual chocolate. Mom, I hope you're enjoying Mm -hmm. uh, this podcast and you ignore that voice I made earlier because that's just weird. All right. So in 1945, Peter Densham was participating in rescue work in the Karagorm Mountains during World War II. One day, he reported hearing strange noises, mist closing in on his location and increasing pressure around his neck. He fled before seeing anything concrete. A friend of his, uh, climber Richard Frere, wrote about his sense of a presence, utterly abstract but intensely real on the mountain, and heard an intensely high singing note a few years later in 1948. Frere also presented the encounter of another mutual friend who wished to remain anonymous while he camped on Ben McDuey. He reported waking up feeling an inescapable feeling of dread and looked out of his tent to see a large figure with dark hair standing in front of the moon in silhouette. In 1958, naturalist and mountaineer Alexander Tunyon published an article in the Scots magazine about an encounter with the Grey Man in 1943. As dense mist rolled in from Laird Grew, Tunyon noted, I am not unduly imaginative, but my thought flew instantly to the well-known story of Professor Colley in The Fearliath Moor. Then I felt the reassuring weight of the loaded revolver in my pocket. Grasping the butt, I peered about in the mist, here rent and tattered by the eddies of wind. A strange shape loomed up, receded, and came charging at me. 
Without hesitation, I whipped at the revolver and fired three times at the figure. When it still came on, I turned and hared down the path, reaching Glendary in a time that I have never bettered. You may ask, was it really the fear layeth more? Frankly, I think it was. Many times since then, I have traversed Macdui in the mist, bivouacked out in the open, camped on its summit for days on end on different occasions, often alone, and always with an easy mind. For on that day, I am convinced I shot the only fear, the Athmore, my imagination will ever see. Wow. So no no photographs of the big gray man have ever been taken. Phot- uh, photographer John A. Rennie supposedly found a series of footprints in Spey Valley uh, measuring 19 inches uh, long and uh, 14, 14 inches wide. And these were published in a book, but he later discovered that they were actually a natural phenomenon caused by rainfall eroding the snow. So there is no hard evidence that this entity exists. So, possible theories. Mm-hmm. The first few that I'll, I'll mention are of a scientific nature. So one is infrasound, which I think we've talked about before in the Diet Love episode. Where did we, and we did, we talked about it since though too. I feel like we did. Oh, damn. I'm getting old. My memory is a colander. So infrasound, just so we can recap, is is generated by wind and can cause feelings of uneasiness and anxiety and is possibly connected to paranormal sightings. It was diet it was diet love. Yeah. It was for sure. Well, yeah. we talked about the those massive winds that might have ripped them off the mountains, but I feel there was another episode, Riley, where we talked about infrasound. But I do remember you mentioning this as well in Diet Love. The infrasound definitely could explain the feeling of uneasy uneasiness that people experience, the fear that they experience. These are sounds that you don't we you don't register that you're even hearing them, right? They're at a frequency mm-hmm. that is um, not noticeable to us. I think maybe we also talked about this because there's been some speculation with ghost sightings that's actually being generated by sounds at a very high frequency that are that cause people to then hallucinate, right? Mm-hmm. So that is a possible possible explanation another one is oxygen deprivation and a monotone landscape could easily lead to auditory and visual hallucinations as well as a sense of panic if someone is experiencing a loss of oxygen so when you combine this with the power of already existing legend it's easy to imagine that even the most well-meaning explorer might see something that's not really there the next one is for People that want to rationalize this, this is the most widely accepted theory. There's a problem with it, though, and I'll explain that after. So the most popular scientific explanation is that what people are seeing is a Brocken specter. So Brocken, B-R-O-C-K-E-N, not broken, but Brocken. Okay. So Brocken specters are a meteorological phenomenon, which only occurs when an inversion or gaps in the cloud allow the viewer to see their own shadow cast upon a cloud. The effect is very spooky with a great, uh, with a giant gray shadow stretching from your feet into the atmosphere. And in certain conditions, it is accompanied by a circular rainbow, which surrounds the shadow known as a glory. It's an odd thing to experience. There was not exactly, not at all the same thing, but just to show the power of optical illusion recently, I believe it was in the UK, someone 
recorded on their camera what looked like a ship floating on the horizon. Yes. Yeah, I saw that. And there was an inversion. It was a trick of the light that made it look like that. Yeah, I saw that. It was amazing. So there are only a few spots in the Cairngorms where this phenomena can be seen with any certainty. And even then, there's no guarantee since it requires steep cliffs to give the elevation required to get above the cloud. One such place, which often crops up in Big Gray Man stories, is Lurcher's Crag. These 1,000 feet cliffs stand guard over the northern entrance to the Lair Gru, which is the main pass of the Cairngorms. And it is entirely possible that the Spectre of Brocken has been seen in this area and interpreted as some otherworldly presence. The poet James Hogg encountered a Brocken Spectre on Ben McDwee as far back as 1791, describing a giant black person at least 30 feet high and equally proportioned and very near me. I was actually struck powerless with astonishment and terror. Hogg's terror subsided, though, when he observed the figure making the same gestures as his own, realizing that it was merely his own shadow when he removed his hat. And British mountaineer Frank Smythe stated he had observed his shadow cast as a Brock inspector across the mist on Ben McDwee as well. But these theories have a problem. Can you figure it out? How they don't explain those past stories. The sound. Well, the sound, the crunching, yep, and the fact they're, all of them, either they're happening at night or in thick mist where they couldn't see of the sun, right? Of course, okay. So that it, you you need to see your shadow in order for a Brock inspector to come into play. Can I ask you a quick question? When was the last sighting? There's been continued sightings ever since. So it's an ongoing issue. It's an ongoing issue. I'm sure a bulk of them now are false. You know, people looking like how people claim they see the Loch Ness monster, right, or Bigfoot. The ones I, I, I shared with you to the, in today's episode, those are just some of the more famous ones and most eloquent, right? Oh yeah. Like I found one quote of a guy who saw it two years ago, and it was filled with expletives and uh, the mention of the group Anthrax. And I was like, no way. Anthrax? Like the, the, the sort of light metal band? Yes. And I was like, no way. I am not lowering the bar on my podcast. Get out of town, Terry. It's not a reliable source. Everyone knows Scottish people do not curse. I, I, made, I did make that up because I think I feel like now you actually think that Somehow Anthrax is involved. No, no, but I'm, I'm just remembering Anthrax. They did a cover version of a Joe Jackson song called Got the Time. And it's a great song. They did a great, what is that called? When two bands come together? A um, Bring the Noise. Yes, yeah. Bring the Noise. I love that song. So some commentators have tried to suggest that the Big Gray Man is a manifestation of the spirit of the place. And this has deep roots. This is part of the lore of the land. It's not a, and you asked earlier, you know, the Bigfoot thing, it's different. So the theory goes, the spirit was transformed by local people's imagination into an actual being. From the start of human history, we have transferred human characteristics and forms uh, onto the world around us. From early religions to the present day, anthropomorphism has helped us describe the unknown. I think of, have you guys watched or read American Gods, the Neil Gaiman Read it. Read it. Hated it. Why do you have to hate everything that I love? I'll, I'll tell you something. I didn't. We talked about American Gods before. Didn't love it, Dan. Didn't. I don't think it's Gaiman's best work. Uh, sorry, you don't like the television 
adaptation or you don't like the book as well? I didn't like the book. I didn't like a Nancy, all of that stuff. I thought it was, it was a tough read for me and I didn't like it because I can't watch Ian McShane. I literally can't watch him. I didn't love the show. I watched the first couple episodes. I couldn't get into it. I've never read the book, but I like Ian McShane. I like Deadwood. So my point with that though, is that it's that concept of gods exist in the form that they do because people believe because of their will, these things have power. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of that same concept that people's belief has taken the spirit of this mountain and made it into this big gray man. The other idea with it too, is that some people have different degrees of sensory acuity. Some have 20, 20 vision, while others can hear a pin drop. With this in mind, it becomes plausible then that some are able to read signs too subtle for others and can sense the spirit of a place. So some can are in tune, some are not. Well, Dan, if you really want to explore this further, there are some great shows such as one, there's a famous one called Ghost Hunters, where they go to haunted places and feel cold spots and feel spirits. Oh, they're amazing. Okay. I just need to say this right now. My feet are cold. And I, f- I felt something just walk by me. Like, no, but seriously, my feet are cold. Yes, my air conditioner is on, uh, but they're cold. <laughs> Okay, let's get off that topic and let's talk about your favorite one, okay? Your favorite theory, I'm sure, Riley, is that this is some form of Bigfoot. Oh, I thought you were going to throw out aliens. You know what? Actually, I will say this. Yes, there are people that say uh, that it is perhaps aliens. Of course. But there's been no sightings of ships or anything like that, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's interesting. So some people believe that it could be a Bigfoot. The problem with that, there's no physical, like with the really interesting Bigfoot stories or Sasquatch, there's like footprints and things like that that have been, or even that terrible grainy footage of Bigfoot that's yeah, yeah. so famous, yes, right? Yes, of him yes. walking back into the woods. And, and the other interesting thing too, with Bigfoot, you don't hear people describing uh, encounters with Bigfoot as being menacing or scary. You know, they're not running away. He's usually doing the, or he or she is the one running away from them, not the other way around. Yes. So this is a different vibe to it. My favorite theory though, is that this is a demon or a spirit of some entity that guards a portal between our world and another. Oh, oh, I didn't expect that. Yeah. So there, and this, again, this is tied with the one I was mentioning too, that it's a manifestation of a spirit, but that spirit, its purpose might actually be to, to prevent people from venturing to certain parts. And there's a belief that this is a area that allows you to go to other worlds. And there's even ties with some of the theories out there that this is a, it's a Brahmiv, Brahmiv, what's it? Oh my God. In Hindu belief, there's like five entities and Buddhism. There's these five entities that, that have achieved perfection and they live eternally. And some people think that perhaps, and they are usually associated with mountains and that this creature is one of those five. Did you see, see Sean and us? Just Sean and us. Sean and me are just staring at you blankly because neither one of us know anything about that. Continue. Continue. No, and and, and it's not something that I, I did a lot of. I didn't dig deep on that because I, I read it and I, oh, that's neat. I didn't even include it in my notes. It's just sort of coming up. So I'd actually like to finish off 
officially with a quote again from Peter Densham. So he was one of the guys who's, who uh, was there doing rescue work during the Second World War. He was actually a leader of the Karagorm's RAF rescue team uh, for the duration of the war. So this is from Mr. Densham. Tell me that the wine was but the result of relaxed eardrums and the presence was only the creation of a mind that was accustomed to take too great an interest in such things. I shall not be convinced. Come, rather, with me at the mysterious dusk time when day and night struggle upon the mountains. Feel the night wind on your faces and hear it crying amid rocks. See the desert uplands consumed before the racing storms. Though your nerves be of steel, and your mind says it cannot be, you will be acquainted with that fear without name, that intense dread of the unknown that has pursued mankind from the very dawn of time. Wow, that was your David Attenborough moment there. That was my David Attenborough. And now... Look at the glorious dung beetle as he pushes the rock up the mountain slope. Okay, you know what theory I like the best? I'm going to lay it, lay up. I'm going to testify. I like the idea of the power of the land having a physical manifestation and not necessarily being malevolent. I think it's actually quite beautiful that maybe the land just has, can take on form or has a, a presence has a is able to physically manifest itself and it's just protecting itself yes and it, that's a theory that that or an idea sorry that has been used to explain phenomena in oceans right or in rainforests and all over the world and maybe connects a little bit how you know we talked about how energy can be stored in places mm-hmm. oh yeah we talked about that a lot well, you know, the, and we've said it a million times, the book that made me first think about that was The Shining. Yes. The places could be like batteries, and the more the more of a charge that's built up in them, the more chance that they, they will, you know, manifest. Sean, what do you think? Like Riley, I really like that that theory. Um, I, I kind of like the, uh, you know, that it's a doorway to somewhere else. I think that's very interesting. And if you needed a bouncer, Scotland would be the place to put it. You know, and I also had quite a chuckle at the aliens because you do touch on that every podcast. It always seems to tie in that it's aliens. And I just laughed at the prospect of the thought of, can you imagine being an alien race and the first place you visited was Scotland? Well, but, but it, 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 you know, you, and you think back to its mm. history, my God, they were so wild that the romans didn't even want to bother with them yeah they're one of the few people that they just yeah forget it let's just we're gonna build a wall you get you you have that so wait a minute what the romans you know caesar julius caesar expanded the empire into what is now england right mm-hmm. founded london and, and the romans did they but they got when they got to the north they found the celts that were there too wild and too crazy uh, the irish were the same thing they didn't want to they, they were not people that they wanted to mess with and they didn't see any way of being able to tame them or control them so they just built a wall they built hadrian's wall 
uh, to separate Scotland from the rest of the island. So they were that wild. Yeah, and very fierce. Incredibly, the Romans were afraid of them, right? Because they were a shamanistic culture and society and and believed that they were imbued with potentially some superpowers and stuff. Because wouldn't the Romans kind of adopt your religion a bit and work it into their own culture? Didn't I read that somewhere that that was one of the ways they got to subjugate people? Yeah, it was easy because they were a pagan culture. So they could, it wasn't a stretch to think there were other gods, Mm -hmm. right? So if they liked your God and thought that there was some, okay, yeah, we can, we'll pay uh, a homage to that God. And, and I mean, the classic case is, is the Greek pantheon of gods got completely brought into the Roman culture, but Rome had their own gods before that, you know. I want a whole podcast just about how wild the Scots were. When did they calm down? They haven't. No, they but haven't. I mean, in terms of being, you know, just vicious and tribalistic. Well, the big, the big calming factor for them and even for the Irish was the, unfortunately for you, Riley, the Catholic Church. Right. So their conversion to Christianity made them more, you know. Relaxed. Tolerable and relaxed. I love though that they came across them and they're like, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they fought with them sometimes, but, and the Scots would still cross the wall and raid and do things to bother them. And same thing with the, the Irish, the Irish did the same. They didn't touch the Island. The Vikings of all people even struggled with these people, right? The Vikings fighting the Irish. And yeah. Um, So I I was going to say for this, this is a weird one. I think the vast majority of these encounters are probably explained through science. I definitely think that the Bracken specters are probably, it's a unique phenomenon to that area. I think that in itself, that's, we know that that's the case that a lot of them are, are probably explained by that. I do think though, the fact that all these prominent people all had similar stories of uh, hearing and, and uh, in one case, seeing something. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, again, I'm, I came into this podcast and by podcast, I mean all of these episodes before we started this very much a skeptic and not a big believer in the supernatural uh, or, or aliens or anything like that. And, uh, but this is one of those ones I'd really like for it to be true. I love the romanticism of the story. I think I mentioned that before. You sold me on that. It was a nice calming. It was a nice tale. I felt like I was around a warm campfire listening to a an old yarn. The voices certainly help. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a four-year theater degree for you. There. Would you there listen you to an audiobook by Gilbert Gottfried? Okay. Harry Potter. Who's that other asshole that yells? Sam Kinison? Well, he's dead. Well, it, it, we can still talk about him. What? It's like taboo. If I say his name, he'll appear. Did you know that he actually uh, developed that voice initially, not through comedy, but he was a, I believe, a Baptist minister. <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried or Sam Kidd? Oh, uh, no. Yes, he was. He was a minister of some sort. Uh, but yeah, he was. Yeah. And then he went right off the rails. He was he was a he was a wild man. Mm-hmm. Did he die of natural causes? He actually, if memory serves me correctly, uh, died in a car accident, but it was a drunk driver that hit him. So he, I don't think he was actually, you know, under any sort of influence. I don't know if, I don't, I don't believe he was, but I don't believe the accident was his fault. I would have to look into it more, but if memory serves me correctly. He definitely, definitely died. And there was another comic there as well, I believe. I know his girlfriend was there 
and there was yeah, it, there was another comic. Mm-hmm. The worst, the worst fucking celebrity death in the world is Anton Yelchin. That was terrible. With the uh, with his car. Oh him. man, that's just like the worst. There's also the uh, um, Sean might know more about this than Dan, but there's that famous one where all those uh, fifty singers went down at the same time. It was Richie Ricky Valens or whatever his name is. The day the music died and the big bopper. Uh, the big J- bopper. Yeah, that, my God. Oh, what a terrible, terrible time. That was a terrible, terrible accident as well. Yeah. Yeah, then they it was a plane crash. That The plane basically hit the ground nose first and then, like, flipped. And it just went through this entire farmer's field and they were thrown. Yeah, not to get too gruesome or anything, but it was... Uh, it was bad. They were all killed pretty much instantly. Here, here's an interesting thing. I did I did look it up, and and boy, this is well fits our our show. So tag it on, yeah. About Kinnison. Uh, so you were right, Sean. It was it was a, a drunk driver, a 17 year old kid actually, oh. uh, who hit him head on with his pickup truck. He was in his Trans Am, and he laid. He was ejected from his car. And was laying there dying, and I remember this. I remember he did not die right away. And he was saying, um, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But then he paused as if he was listening to someone. And he then said, but why? And then he paused longer. And then he went, okay, okay, okay. And uh, so it was like he was having this conversation. And then apparently he, when he did die, he was very peaceful and in a weird, strange way, beautiful. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, what a bummer. So Riley, his onstage persona was apparently not at all who he like. He was loved and revered by comics. And he was just like he was apparently was annoying. That's that's uh, but you, that's most comics. They're like, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's true. Like Steve Steve Martin apparently is. I've read uh, a couple of his books and people talk about him, and I've read books with uh, from people that have worked with him and say he's actually a very kind of shy, introverted, you know, quiet person. And you hear that uh, about a lot. A lot of great comics are just. Uh, the one that fascinates me the most, and I'm not a fan of his work. If you've listened to the podcast before, you've heard me talk about it before. <laughs> but what do you know I'm going to talk about? You know, no, I just find it funny because you always poo-poo. No, 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 no. Because I told you I, as soon as I saw the Fisher King, my oh, I know entire yes, opinion yes, of yes. him changed. And it was Robin Williams. I found him just he would annoy me but then i saw the fisher king and i realized this guy's got acting chops would you say bicentennial man is his best oh, in your favorite stop. movie i would love to have had dinner with him and and told him like and said to him like just i just want to meet you you know well let's end on that then because that's somewhat more positive right? okay riley is there anything you'd like to to share with our audience uh, well, we usually wrap up with stuff we've seen lately that I thought was great. So I'll, I got to throw this out there because I'm late to the game. Not a lot of people have seen the movie, and I have to admit 100% that I saw the movie because of the Oscar win. I finally saw Nomadland, and it was fucking brilliant. Frances McDormand is such a great actress. Um, she's up there with Meryl Streep. She's up there with the great, and she's so brilliant at just not having to say anything. It's a movie with not a lot of dialogue, so it's a talented actor who can actually um, pull that off. And Sean and I have been talking about this show on HBO Max right now, Mayor of Easttown. I mentioned it before, but I got to say, man, Evan Peters pulled off the best drunk acting I've seen probably in 20 years. 
That's what I want to say. Yes. And I will uh, just say, that's a great show. I love that show. I'm enjoying it very much. I haven't seen No Man Land yet, but I will. I want to see it. I'm scared to death of watching uh, The Sound of Metal, which is supposed to be great. Uh, just because I play in a band and I have uh, tinnitus or tinnitus, whatever, however, tomato, oh, you I do, have right? it in my left ear. So that movie, the prospect of watching that movie scares the hell out of me. So I don't, I do want to watch it, but I don't. But uh, in terms of the Evan Peters thing, love it. And you talked about, I don't know if it was this episode or another one we've done. Uh, Riley talked about the Eurythmics. It was the last episode. And my son loves the Eurythmics because of Evan Peters. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but he plays Quicksilver in the X-Men movies, and he shows up uh, once, and, and uh, there's a slow-mo scene where he's running yeah, and yeah, a yeah. bunch of people, and they play Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics, and as soon as my son saw that scene, he made me put Sweet Dreams on my iPad, or my iPod, and makes me play it in the car when we're driving. Days of future past. That's hilarious. And Dan, do you have anything of value to add? Well, of course I do. Um, I am continuing my march through the James Bond films. I'm, thank God, almost done the Piers Brosnan set of films. I will say this, and I think I've talked about this before, because I literally started this at, at like Christmas time, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of James Bond movies. There are a lot. I'm going chronologically, Piers Brosnan, I would argue, is the worst James Bond. Yeah, he's got the look. He doesn't have the acting chops. If I can comment quickly, I'll tell you a few things about James Bond. One, uh, Sean Connery was my father's favorite actor. That's who I'm named after. Oh. And yeah, that's a little piece. I love Daniel Craig as James Bond. I can't wait for the new movie. But I do. It's open for debate. We can discuss it another time. But On Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby. Love the movie. Completely agree. It may have been the greatest James Bond movie ever if if Sean Connery had played that part and George Lazenby was still pretty good in it. This is very good. So I agree. I think that's the best film of all, like just that that Alpine retreat. Telly Savalas is the most menacing villain uh, of all of them. He's so, so good. But that I think Piers Brosnan could have been better if, like there's the stories are not strong. Like they're, they're just not Judy Dench is great in them. And I'm glad that she ended up in that, uh, in that role, but it, um, yeah, just like, I, I was thinking that it was going to be Roger Moore was going to be my least favorite, which was ironic. Cause he was my favorite as a kid, but he, he, at least he had, he was actually funny, you know, I love the Roger Moore films because I love the fact that they're goofy. Like I like I like the goofy exaggerated villains and the goofiness of it and I find that the Roger Moore films like Octopussy and all that they had all of that and Moonraker Moonraker's a great movie it's so it's so camp it's just camp is all fuck yeah yes I agree so it's it's been really fun I lo- and I have a tough time if you're asking me the best actor yeah either Connery or Craig you know but Lazenby did a good job I love the Craig ones. Skyfall. The Craig ones are too dark for me. Did you know I almost bought a house named Skyfall? True story. And they were Bond fans who built the house on a hill and named it Skyfall. I almost bought it. I'm totally 100% serious. All right. So we'll end things there. Sean, thanks again for uh, coming in. I I know you're going to uh, to be with us for a little bit longer because we... 
I can tell people what's coming. I, I don't want it to be a surprise. So, guys, for the our 50th, it's a two-parter, and I'm going to be doing a really in-depth look at the Zodiac murders. I'm going to be looking at all the mystery and legends surrounding it because it is a fascinating story. I'm going to be discussing the ciphers, the cryptograms that were circulated to the San Francisco Chronicle, all of it. Some details you might not have ever heard because I came across stuff I had never heard. Because remember, the Zodiac film is only mm-hmm. an adaptation of the Robert Gray. Smith book, which is only one perspective on the crime. There's a lot of others. So we're doing a big two-parter on Zodiac. I can't wait! Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because you're a fan of it too, right, Sean? I like a lot of true crime stuff. I love uh, I love that stuff. So we'll see you next week, Sean. Thanks again for coming. Uh, folks, thank you for listening to The Weird, to our global audience. Thank you so much uh, for uh, downloading and streaming our podcast Uh, We are doing this for you, so we appreciate all the support that you provide us. If you have a show idea or if you'd like to reach out and say hi, we can be found on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, we are always happy to engage with you, our audience. If you enjoy listening to The Weird, please uh, feel free to share that with your friends, your family. Pilots on planes are great because then they can share that on the PA system in the plane, and we can really build our audience that way. With that, Sean, thank you. Riley, you were okay with this episode. And hello, Bhutan. There was one listen from Bhutan. So, you know, thanks, everyone. Have a great night. Good night. Continue. Continue.